Well, good morning, guys. If you have a copy of God's Word, let's go ahead and open our Bibles to the book of Genesis chapter 7. The book of Genesis chapter 7, we are going to continue to work through this wonderful, foundational, fascinating book and this great study that we've been able to take part in. And if you were here with us last week, uh, we talked about the ark, Noah's ark, and, and the historical reliability of the ark as a real vessel and how um, the numbers add up and how God... Um, commanded Noah to build a specific vessel with specific dimensions and how all of the animals that were necessary to reproduce all of the various uh, kinds on the face of the planet today would, would uh, easily have fit within the ark. And, you know, one of the things that I thought about last week as well, I didn't get into to great detail, but just that, that symbolic picture of the ark, that wooden vessel being the only means of salvation for those in the generation of Noah to survive the flood. If they were going to survive the flood, they had to get on the ark. There was only one way to be saved. And I think about those massive wooden beams that, that held that ark together through the, the raging storms of the flood and the darkness and, the, and the, all of the, the chaos that was happening on the face of the planet during the flood. And it made me think about those woods atoning death and sacrifice held Jesus Christ, the Son of God, uh, and his suffering and his atoning death and sacrifice for our sins. And that through Jesus, today, there is still only one way of salvation. And so we saw that beautiful picture of the ark as being God's means to preserve a remnant, to, to save the human race effectively through that. And then uh, we're really going to jump in now today about the flood itself. And so when we think about the flood of Noah's day, I touched on that a little bit last week about how if you look at all of the different civilizations, all of the ancient folklore and legends all over the earth, there is a flood legend that is attached to just about every single culture on the planet, whether it be ancient cultures or even, even today. And so what we see is that there was a flood in ancient times, and we know the Bible gives us the true account of that flood. And so today what I want to do is I want to share with you five important facts about the flood, okay? Five important facts about the flood. And here's what I want to do. Let's just jump into Genesis chapter 7, picking up in verse 11. And I'm going to read uh, several verses here in Genesis 7, 11, and then we're going to go ahead and jump into these five important facts about the flood. And I think you're going to find these very, very interesting this morning. So Genesis 7, verse 11, it says this, In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth. Now you're going to want to pay attention to that because that's going to be very important to helping explain what really happened to the earth itself during Noah's flood. So we're not just talking about 40 days of torrential rain, which definitely was part of the flood, but this is a key component of this whole story. The fountains of the great deep, it says they burst forth, okay? It says, and the windows of heaven were opened, and rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights, and on that very day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife, and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark, and every beast according to its kind, and all the livestock, livestock according to their kind, every creeping thing that creeps on the earth every, every, according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature, they went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh, in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered the ark, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and look at this, 
and the Lord shut him in. I want you all to picture that here. As Noah and the animals boarded the ark, as the last animal was on the ark or the last person was on the ark, the Lord from the outside shut them in and sealed them and secured them in the ark. And then verse 17, the flood continued 40 days on the earth and waters increased and bore up the ark and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth and the ark floated on the face of the waters. The waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed over the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep, and all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, and all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground. Man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. Basically five months that the waters prevailed on the ark until the ark finally rested on the mountains of Ararat there in eastern Turkey. And so there you see kind of the, the flood story. And we'll get back to some of the particular language that is used in the story itself. But there's two very important statements that I need to make before we start looking at the evidence for the flood. And those two statements are simply this. So here's fact number one I want to share with you this morning. The flood was global, not local. Now listen, some of you may be saying, why are you even taking the time? Of course the globe, <laughs> excuse me, of course the flood was global, right? You know what? There are many people today, you would be surprised, not only, of course, let's, let's set the secular, uh, naturalistic, evolutionary side on, on, on one end over here. Obviously, they don't affirm or, or believe in any type of a global flood in the recent past, so we know that. But did you know that there are many Bible-teaching pastors and Christians and theologians who also embrace this idea that Noah's flood was not global? That it did not cover the whole earth. That, that they, what they propose is that Noah's flood was simply a local flood or maybe even a regional flood. Maybe it affected there the ancient Near East or the Middle Eastern area of the globe. But it did not in any way cover the entire earth. And you would be surprised to find out there are many people who hold this viewpoint. And I want to just ask the question, well, why is that? Okay, let me give you a couple of reasons why some people would propose that when the Bible speaks of Noah's flood, that it was only a local flood and not a global flood. Well, part of it, they will say, someone who holds to a local flood uh, perspective, they would say something like, say, or the whole, well, you know, sometimes the Bible talks about the whole earth or, or the whole land. Uh, let me give you an example. In the book of Daniel chapter 2, it talks about the Persian Empire and that the Persian Empire covered the whole earth. Now, we know historically speaking, the Persian Empire did not come to North America. The Persian Empire was not in power and authority over South America or parts of China and other parts of Australia and all over other parts of the earth. And so when the Bible says that the Persian Empire covered the whole earth, what did it mean? Well, we know from a historical perspective it meant the whole known earth at that time, basically the whole known world. So it would be the ancient Near East or the Middle East 
parts of northern Africa, pushing into Turkey and, and uh, Eastern Europe and then and, and other parts there in, around Babylon and, and the Middle East. And so when the, when the Bible talks about the Persian Empire covering the whole earth, well, then we understand it didn't talk about the entire planet. And so they'll take that kind of an interpretation or that kind of a reasoning. They'll say, you see, in the same way that the Persian Empire didn't cover the whole earth as far as the whole planet, the globe, that's the way we should interpret the flood of Noah's day, that maybe it was just talking about the, ne- the known world, the ancient Near East, at least everything that the people of that day knew about because they didn't know about all the other parts of the world at that time. And so that's the kind of a reasoning that they will take when it comes to interpreting the flood, okay? But then you, 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 you read throughout the scriptures and there's so many different passages that speak about the whole earth. Let me give you an example. Psalm 47, 7 says that God is king over the whole earth. Now, does that mean that he's only king over part of the earth? Obviously not. We know that the Lord God is the king of the universe. He's king over the entire planet. And so how do we know when to interpret the the entire planet and when to interpret just part of the known world in the day of the ancient writers of the Bible? And so here's the thing that I want you guys to see is that when Genesis 6 begins talking about the, the Bible use of man kind during the days of Noah preceding the flood. What kind of language does the Bible use? Listen to what the language is when it talks about Genesis 6. It says, God saw the wickedness of man on the what? On the earth. And the earth was corrupt in God's sight. And the earth was filled with violence. Okay, so when God says that the earth was filled with violence and that the earth was uh, corrupt and that all flesh had corrupted its way on the earth, let me ask you this question. Is God only talking about a particular section of the Middle East. Nobody would ever propose that. We understand that, theologically speaking, that God's talking about the entire what? The entire globe, the entire planet, every part of the earth had been corrupted and had grown wicked and violent and evil in the sight of God. And so that's one of the things that we need to understand when interpreting the flood. And I'll give you many more reasons why here in just a minute, why we do have to see this from a global perspective. This was not a regional or a local flood. The other reason why some theologians and pastors and Bible teachers hold to a local or a regional flood view is this, is because they have embraced evolution. And the minute that you embrace the theory of evolution, then there is no room, there's no way you can allow for a global flood in the recent past. Because when you look at the theory of evolution, what they do is that they, they are looking at the past in terms of vast amounts of time, millions if not billions of years. And when they look at the rock layers and all the things we're going to see in just a minute, they look at that through the lens of evolutionary worldview, and they basically say all these things happened over a long period of time. So if there was a global flood in the recent past of evolution, that would completely destroy this idea of vast ages of evolution. And unfortunately, you have pastors and teachers who try to reconcile and embrace evolution, whether it be theistic evolution, maybe God did it, or whatever it is, that, that how they try to reconcile those things in their own heart and in on their own mind is that that's the reason why they have to reject a global flood in the recent past, okay? So let's just look for starters at how the Bible describes the flood, and you tell me what you think. Back up to Genesis 6, 6 real quick. Genesis 6, verse 11 says this, 
The earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence, and God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, and all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth, and God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. So the very first indicator we see here is when God told Noah what he was about to do through the flood, he said, listen, all flesh has corrupted its way, and I'm going to destroy every living, every living thing with the earth. So he's talking in terms of totality here. Let me read Genesis again. I just read Genesis 7, uh, 11 through 24, but if you go back and just track some of the language in that, listen to what some of the things that God says here. It says, the ark went up. Uh, excuse me, in verse 17, the, the flood continued and increased high above the earth. The waters prevailed greatly on the earth. The waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. Does that sound like a global event? I mean, excuse me, a local event to you? All the high mountains under the what? Whole heaven were covered. Okay, this language is purposeful. Now let me, let me read. Uh, from Psalm 104, listen to this. Psalm 104, verse 5 says this. I'll come back to this again in a minute. But it says this. He says, Psalm 104, verse 5. He set the earth on its foundation so that it should never be moved. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. At your rebuke, they fled. At the sound of your thunder, they took flight. The mountains rose, the valleys sank down to the place that you appointed them, and you set about cover that they shall not pass so that they might never again cover the earth. And so what we see here is when the Bible talks about the flood, the Bible is using language that is intentional. And that language is universal. It's global in scope. This was indeed a global flood. It was not a regional flood. Now, let's just use some common sense. You ready? Let's think about this from a practical point of, point of view. If the flood of Noah's day was a regional flood, maybe it was just a local flood. Maybe it was just right there in the Middle East. It, it didn't affect any other part of the earth. Can I ask this question? Why didn't God tell Noah just to move? Why do you go through the trouble a building, a boat. How, how long did we, we know that Noah had some time, right, to get everything prepared to build it. How long do we think Noah probably had? 120 years. And the Lord is telling Noah, I need you to build this ark into these specific dimensions. And I need you to, to be prepared to take care of all the animals that I'm going to bring to you to put them on the ark. And my, my question is this. If there was just going to be a regional or a local flood and God wanted to make a covenant with Noah to use Noah to become the progenitor of the human race, then why didn't he just say, hey, Noah, guess what? There's fixing to be a local flood in your area. You've got 120 years. It's time to what? Pack up and move to higher ground, buddy. Get out of harm's way. And guess what? All the animals, why put all the animals on the ark? You know, animals could have avoided the flood. They instinctually know how to get out of the way of natural disasters and floods. And so they would have easily been able to escape a regional or local flood. So that doesn't make any sense to me at all. Why go through all this trouble and all this detail if we're just talking about a local or a regionalized event? But here's the next thing that I would say. Y'all flip over to Genesis 9 with me real quick. And we're going we're gonna to cover this in more detail in, in a few weeks to come. But look at Genesis 9, and I want you all to look at what God made a promise, how God made a promise to Noah. 
and to Genesis 9, verse 8. The Lord God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds and livestock and every beast of the earth, as many as came out of the ark. Listen, it is for every beast of the earth I will establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood and never again shall shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. Now think about what God just told Noah. This is after the flood. He's making a covenant, a promise to Noah. And he says, Noah, I'm making this promise to you. And he says this in verse 12. This is the sign of my covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you. Listen, for all future generations. That includes what? Today. Now let me ask you this question. If Noah's flood was a local or regional flood... And God turned around and promised Noah that he would never do that again. Can we ask this question? Have we ever had any other local or regional floods on the earth? They happen all the time, don't they? But yeah, you're trying to tell me that God made a promise based on his word. He made a covenant promise to Noah that he would never do anything like that again to Noah or to the creatures or the every living thing on the face of the planet. And he said, I'm going to make a covenant with you. I'm going to make a promise with you that I will never do this again. And so effectively, if we believe that Noah's flood was a local or a regional flood, then that means that every time there's another local or regional flood, we are calling God a liar. You just lied to me, God, because you promised Noah that would never happen again. There are tsunami floods all the time. Back in 2004, the tsunami that hit uh, the islands there in Sumatra, I think it was something like that, 250,000 people perished in a tsunami. If it's a local flood, we just called God a liar. We just said your word means nothing. We clearly understand that what God was talking about and what the Bible clearly describes is that this is not a local, this is not a regional event, guys. This is what? This is global. This covered the entire earth. Now, that stands to reason number two is that if the, if the flood of Noah's day was a global flood, then we understand just by, by reason that it was a total and absolute destruction of all life on the earth. We know this, Right? All flesh perished in the flood except Noah and his sons and their wives and his wife and the, animal that, the animals that were on the ark. And so I don't have to go into great detail because all of the verses that I just read to you talk about the end of all flesh, that all flesh died, every, every living thing perished. And so we understand that not only was the local, excuse me, Noah's flood a global flood, but it was total in its scope and its destruction. If you weren't on that ark that day, you would not have survived. Every living thing, every breathing thing, every land animal, every bird. And listen, even a lot of the marine animals died during the flood. And the reason we know that is because we're going to see in just a minute, there's fossils all over the earth of fish and marine animals that they didn't survive the flood either. Now, many did, but the marine, the the water, the animals in the water, many of them perished as well. So this was an absolute destruction of the planet. And so here's what I want to ask you this morning. If the flood was global and it was total in in scope and absolute in scope, when we look at the world around us today, is there any evidence, is there anything out there that would suggest that perhaps this whole planet and the 
the landscape of this entire planet, the topography of this, of this earth was changed and rearranged and reorganized and completely just drowned in water in the recent past. Do we have evidence of this when we look at the earth around us? And my answer to that question is a resounding yes. On his triumph, so much evidence. Did you know when Jesus came in on his triumphal entry, the week leading up to his crucifixion, Y'all remember what happened? He rode in on a donkey, and they're laying the palm branches in front of his feet and saying, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And some of the Pharisees and religious leaders came to Jesus, and they said, hey, tell them to stop saying that. Tell them to shut up, because they knew that was a messianic proclamation. They were calling Jesus the Messiah when they did that. And you remember what Jesus said to them? He said, hey, even if they stop, praising and giving me glory, even the what? Even the stones, even the rocks will cry out and praise me and give me glory. Guys, let me tell you something about what we see in our world is that the rocks and the fossils that we find in those rocks all over the world, they are crying out today as a witness to the global flood and God's judgment. This is what we see in nature. Now let's look at some images and I, I, love, I love nature. I love looking at um, all these different beautiful rock formations. This is the painted desert uh, out west. You can see, you, you, you begin to, here's the thing I want to challenge you with. When you look at these images, I want to ask you this question. You're either looking at them to, through, uh, through two different lenses, okay? When you see a rock formation, you either see it as something that is vastly old, millions of years old, like this has just been here forever and ever and ever, and it took millions of years for this to happen. Or you see this through the lenses of Scripture, and you understand perhaps all of these rock formations that we see all around the earth were formed rather rapidly. They could have been formed quite rapidly. And so let me just show you a couple of these images. This is Moab Desert, I think, out in Utah. Beautiful. You see how the, the whole, there's a land, natural land bridge that you have there. Some of you may have been out here to some of these places. And, of course, we know, I know this image isn't the best, but how many of you have ever been to the Grand Canyon? So I hear that, it, again, breathtaking, right? I, I want to, it's one of my bucket list dreams. I want to be able to go to the Grand Canyon one day and just be able to stand on the rim of that vast canyon and look out at the beauty and glory of God's creation. But when people look at something like the Grand Canyon, they look at it from two different perspectives. One person who really leans to naturalism, evolution, those kind of things, they look at something like the Grand Canyon, they say, look, look at that. That's millions of years of erosion that's taking place right there. But a creation is someone who upholds the authority of the word of God in the scriptures. They look at that and say, you know what? This right here could have formed very fast. It could, it could, have, it could have been developed like that. It could have been carved like that very, very fast. When you see rock layers like this all over the earth, coming from, again, from a naturalistic perspective, you're going to be taught that all of those rock layers represent how many years? Millions of years. You got one rock layer down here, millions of years later, you got one on top. And the higher you go, the younger you get, the, the further down you go, the older you get. And so we see things like this. Now, here, here's the two different perspectives. Let me break it down for you, okay? I'm going to give you two big words. 
You don't have to remember them, but they're very simple in, in, uh, as far as understanding them. One is uniformitarianism. Everybody say that, uniformitarianism. <laughs> Here's what uniformitarianism means. It's the belief that everything we see in nature has been the process over vast ages of time that has been a constant, gradual process so that when we look at the rocks and things around us, that we see that we got those things today, that we, what we view today in present day is something that happened over millions of years through constant, gradual processes over time. That's uniformitarianism, okay? The other perspective is, um, is called uh, catastrophism. Okay, in other words, the word catastrophe is in there, obviously. Catastrophism, which simply means that when you look at all of these rock formations and everything, they can be explained not by gradual processes over millions of years of time, but they are actually explained by rapid processes of catastrophic proportions that under the right conditions and the right elements that things that really change the whole surface of the earth. And, of course, we're going to get into more of that here in just... A second. Again, what are these beautiful layers? Again, you look at these layers, and this is what you understand. Could this have happened rapidly, or did this take a very long time? Well, let me look at this one for just a second. This is an interesting photograph because you, can you see the person way down there, a really small person down, kind of in a red shirt? I don't know if you can see that very well. And then above him, what do you see? A bunch of what? Layers, right? So if I were to and, and take this to science class, and I would say, hey, kids, here's a guy, and he's standing by a rock formation with all those layers. How long do you think it took those layers to form? Most kids in science class have been taught how long did it take them to form? Millions of years. Guess what? You know how long it took these rock layers to form? A few hours. Do you know how we know that? Because in 1980... Something happened up in Washington State called the eruption of Mount St. Helens. Anybody remember that? Two years after I was born, I don't remember. Mount St. Helens erupted. It put off amazing amounts of magma and ash and, and mud flows and all kind of things happened. A third of the mountain was just exploded out off of the top of the peak and there was massive erosion. And guys, these rock layers were formed in a matter of hours and they called the, 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 there's a canyon that was formed outside of Mount St. Helens. You know what they call it? They call it the Mini Grand Canyon. It's a, it's a smaller canyon on the same scale, about, about 140th of the scale of the Grand Canyon. And it's amazing because when you look at the canyon that's formed outside of Mount St. Helens, they observe this taking place and it proves that something like this, like a massive canyon with massive rock layers can be formed very rapidly so if one volcano if one and if the whole can do this in a matter of hours imagine what would happen if the whole earth was going under this catastrophic volcanism and floodwaters and all of the catastrophic conditions during the global flood guys it would completely change and rearrange the surface of the earth and it would do so not over millions of years. It would do so quickly. Okay? Now, let's talk fossils for just a second. You see these fossils. 
And what you're going to notice in some of these fossils, number one, is a lot of them look like they're in a lot of pain and suffering as they were trapped and buried. Okay, so you see something like this. Look at this. This is one of the ancient dinosaurs uh, that they have fossilized. You see how its neck is all bent back. It looks like it was rapidly buried in some type of catastrophic conditions. And so you guys have seen pictures like this all over the world. This is an interesting fossil I wanted to show you right here. If you don't know what this is, this is an ancient fish. And if you notice there's something hanging out of its backside right there, guess what? It was actually giving birth. This fish was fossilized in the process of what? Giving birth. How does it? That was a long labor, right? I mean, it must have taken that fish like a million years to give birth to that baby. But that's what an evolutionist would, they will look at that fossil and they can't explain that. How is it that this fish was in the process of giving birth and it was rapidly fossilized at that very moment? How does that happen? It's because, guys, fossils don't need millions of years to form. Fossils only need the right conditions to form. And if they have the right conditions that are met, they will form very, very sure where rapidly. This one is amazing. This is a huge dinosaur that was discovered. I'm not sure, 100% sure where they discovered this dinosaur. It's an Ankylosaurus, I think, something like that. This thing is like 2,500 pounds. It doesn't, the picture doesn't do it justice. Okay, this thing is massive, and it's almost perfectly preserved. And this is what's so amazing to me. When you ask the scientists and the archaeologists who, who dug this out and discovered this, they still will try to say that this thing is like 100 million years old. But you know what they say? They say the only way we can understand and explain how well-preserved this dinosaur was is that it must have been rapidly buried in what? In lots of water. That's the only way they explain it. They say somehow this thing must have got buried in water and mud and sediment and it was preserved in this present condition and that's why it was, has such a great uh, preservation to its uh, shape and form and everything. And so even the, the evolutionists admit that fossils that are so well preserved have to be preserved through rapid burial in mud and water. Well, guys, I don't know about you, but there's no other greater explanation to explain all of the fossil beds and fossil graveyards all over this planet than to say that at some point in the recent past, this entire planet must have been covered in what? In water. At some point in our recent past, this entire planet had to be washed and covered in mud and water and sediment in order for all of these animals and plants to be buried rapidly and preserved. Because listen to me, there is no way for a fossil to be formed when animals are left out in the elements. This is very important. I know I'm getting technical and we're talking about science, guys, but these are the objections that you're going to hear from your friends and your family when they reject the biblical account of the flood. If an animal dies and it lays out in the pasture, in a couple of days, that animal's going to be ripped apart, decomposed, scavengers are going to grab it, it's going to be spread out all over the earth. It's not going to be what? Fossilized. The only way an animal or plant can be fossilized is if it is buried very rapidly. Or exactly what we see all over the earth. How many of you opened your science books, biology or zoology science books, 7th and 8th grade, and you saw this? The geologic columns, still teaching it in school today. You know how much scientific uh, evidence supports the geologic columns? Zero. This is a man-made figment of some guy's imagination. 
and they want to say that it's, you know, 4.5 billion years, and they walk it up, and these are the more primitive uh, species, and it gets up to the dinosaur in the Jurassic area, and then finally gets up to, you know, modern man, and, and all, listen, guys, this right here is nothing more than evolutionary propaganda that they put in science books to make sure that they can reinforce to your children this idea that the rock layers represent millions, if not billions, of years of evolution. Here's what's interesting to me about this geologic column. You think about all the different species that we have found in fossils, and they're trying to tell me that all these pre, uh, these, these lesser evolved fossils became more highly evolved fossils and they eventually became mammals and man and all that. Here's the thing that I'm asking. Here's the question I'm asking. Where are all the transitional fossils? Where are they? Matter of fact, if, if we believe that all these earlier fossils became more complex fossils and became more complex fossils, then what we have to believe is that there has to be a link, a transition between less complex fossils and more complex animals, right? Guess how many transitional fossils they have found in the world? Zero. If you can find me one, please let me know. You're trying to tell me that all the plant and animal life that we see on the earth today can be explained by this. No, people, this is all man-made propaganda. So make sure that we understand what we're looking at when we look at the nature and the rocks, layers, and everything that we see in our world. Let's make sure we know what we're looking at. I want you all to watch this for just a second. Difficult questions may be found. Having served as director of one of the United States Defense Department's major research and development laboratories, Dr. Walter Brown comes with an impressive list of credentials and credibility. In tackling the subject of Earth's geological development, Dr. Brown has developed a theory that contradicts the generally accepted viewpoint of the scientific community. Profound and far-reaching, this respected scientist's hydroplate theory not only offers a completely new approach to the geological sciences, it succeeds where the prevailing theory often fails. It simply and logically explains some of the Earth's most profound mysteries. We can see on our planet 25 major features that can now be systematically explained as a consequence of a global flood that erupted from subterranean chambers with an energy release exceeding the explosion of 30 trillion hydrogen bombs. This theory shows us just how rapidly major mountains form. It explains the coal, oil, and methane deposits, the rapid continental drift, and why the ocean, on the ocean floor there are huge trenches, hundreds of canyons, and tens of thousands of volcanoes. This theory also explains the ice ages, and it gives the primary reason for global warming. It explains the formation of the layered strata and almost all fossils, the frozen mammoths, and major land canyons, especially the Grand Canyon. Surprisingly, it explains the origin of, of comets, of asteroids, and of meteorites. According to Dr. Brown's theory, the ancient world that Noah lived in was very different from the Earth we occupy today. Noah and other pre-flood people probably lived on one very large supercontinent with lush vegetation, inland seas and major rivers. The mountains were smaller than today's, perhaps 6,000 feet high. The Earth's surface, about half the Earth's water was in interconnected chambers, 
about 10 miles below the Earth's surface. This formed a thin spherical shell, almost a mile thick. The pressure in the subterranean chamber had been increasing for centuries because the gravity of the sun and moon produced tides in the subterranean water that lifted and lowered the Earth's massive crust twice a day. This tidal pumping added gigantic amounts of, of energy to the subterranean water. This increasing pressure in the subterranean water steadily stretched the crust as a, as a balloon stretches when the pressure inside increases. Failure in the crust began as a microscopic crack that grew in both directions at almost three miles per second. The crack, following the path of least resistance, encircled the globe in about two hours. As the crack raced around the earth, the overlying rock crust opened up like a rip in a tightly stretched cloth. So the water exploded violently out of the rupture. The Bible even gives us a precise date the 600th year of Noah's life on the 17th day of the second month. On that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst open. Then it says, and the rain fell. The fountains of water jetted supersonic. I'm, I'm going to stop it right there just for the sake of time. But, but I, Walter Brown, I think, does a great job. Again, this is his theory. It, it can be tested. It, it, he, he goes into all the great details and the scientific and the mathematical um, uh, formulas and all those kind of things, but but I just wanted to give y'all a glimpse and an understanding of ca uh, catastrophism, because when the fountains of the great deep burst open, guys, this is what was happening. There was massive plate tectonics uh, shifting in the plates underneath the earth. Volcanoes would have been erupting. It was like, like, like he said, hydrogen bombs exploding basically with water all over the earth, causing all kinds of um, major catastrophic conditions uh, for the global flood, and so that you, you would have had uh, fractures and fault lines, mud apart, I mean, ash, sediment deposits all over the place, earthquakes, tsunamis, land masses would have been breaking apart. I mean, this would have been the most um, cataclysmic event in human history. I mean, this, this is what was happening in, in the flood. Peter says that the world that, that then existed doesn't exist anymore because of this. Somebody say, may say, well, then where did all the water go? If water covered the entire earth, where did it go? Last time I checked, this planet is about what? 70, a little over 70% water now. Do you know that all the water that's on the earth today, if you spread it out all over the earth, it would cover the earth over 5,000 feet high with the water that's in the oceans today. So there's plenty of water, and the reason that we have water 70% on the earth's surface is because it is evidence of the global flood. And so, again, I could get into all of these details, and, and here's some of the things that we would expect to see if we had a global flood. Did you know that when rock climbers and mountain climbers get on the top of Mount Everest, do you know what they find? Marine fossils, clams, fossils of fish, shark teeth. Now, you, you, you explain to me for just a second, how did a shark get on top of Mount Everest? The only way you can explain it is that at one time in the recent past, there must have been a global flood. You see folded rock layers all over the earth, guys. This is amazing to me. When you start looking at all the rock layers, look at this. Now, I'm going to give you a perfect illustration of how to explain how important this is. Okay, this is rock. How do you bend rock like that? Look at this. This is my favorite right here. Now, that's a beautiful one. This is my favorite right here. All right, now, how many of you ever played with Play-Doh? Used to love playing with Play-Doh. 
as long as you keep the Play-Doh in the little bitty container, it's fine, right? But you, you get the Play-Doh out and you leave it out and you come back a few hours later, what is it? Hard as a rock. And if you try to do anything with that Play-Doh after you leave it out and it dries out, what's going to happen to that Play-Doh? It's going to break and, and, and it's going to fall apart. How do you explain to me how rocks were swirled and folded and, bend and, and were bent like this? They couldn't have been hard or they would have what? Broken apart. So they had to be what? They had to be wet. They had to be moldable. They had to be pliable. Well, guess what? There's rocks all over the earth that are bended and folded like this. There's no other way to explain them except the global flood. And this is one that I love. Y'all know what that is right there? That's a tree going through millions of years of layers of rock. Think about how long it would have taken that tree to grow. Of course, it didn't grow for millions of years. It was placed right there in the sediment during the flood. And there's all these polystrata fossils that are all over the world. Listen, guys, I could go into so much more detail, but I want to get a more practical thing this morning. And that's this. The global flood of Noah's day serves as a constant reminder of the coming judgment on the day of the Lord. Now, I mentioned Zephaniah to you a little bit earlier. Many of you probably have never read the book of Zephaniah, but I'm going to ask you to turn there. Zephaniah chapter 1. You got Jonah, you got Micah, you got Nahum and Habakkuk, and you got Zephaniah. Now, I'm going to read Zephaniah chapter 1, okay? And I just want you guys to try to really comprehend how severe and how sure the coming day of the Lord really is and what it's going to be like. And, and you know what? We avoid passages of Scripture like this because just to be quite frank with you, they're, they're kind of scary. They're, they're very heavy, Okay? So let's just, let's just see what Zephaniah says about the day of the Lord. Zephaniah 1, I'm going to start in verse 2. I will utterly sweep away every man and beast the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. Sounds a lot like the what? Like the flood. But remember, God made a promise that he would never again flood the earth with. He would never again destroy the earth with what? With water. Okay? Listen to what he says. Verse 4. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. I will cut off from this place the remnants of Baal and the name of the idolatrous priest along with the priest. Those who bow down on the roofs to the host of heavens, to those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear by Milcom, those who have turned back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him, be silent before the Lord our God, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guest, and on the day of the Lord's sacrifice I will punish the officials and the king's sons and all who array themselves in foreign attire. On that day I will punish everyone who leaps over the threshold, those who fill their master's house with violence and fraud. On that day, declares the Lord, a cry will be heard from the fish gate, a well from the second quarter, a loud crash from the hills. Well, O 
inhabitants of mortar, for all the traders are no more. All who weigh out silver are cut off. At that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps and punish the men who are complacent. Those who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. Their goods shall be plundered, their houses laid waste. Though they build houses, they will not inhabit them. Though they plant vineyards, they will not drink. The great day of the Lord is near, near, and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be their silver like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor gold will be able to save them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. Now listen to what he says. In the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed for a full and sudden end he will make of the inhabitants of the earth. Now I read that to you this morning to help you understand that when you look at rocks and you look at fossils, guys, what we're seeing is the evidence of God's judgment. What we're seeing is the sure evidence that God at one time destroyed the whole earth because of man's wickedness and sin, and the promise is that he will do it again. In a different way, on the day of the Lord, when the Lord Jesus Christ comes with a consuming fire to judge the ungodly. And the last thing I'll share with you is this. If you're not spiritually awake and prepared to meet Jesus, his judgment will come upon you suddenly like a flood. Now, guys, I'm not going to spend the time. I want you to, when you get a chance, go read Matthew 24, 32 through 51. But let me just tell you, you see, I've heard this my whole life. Nobody knows when Jesus is coming. I've heard this my whole life. Some, some people say Jesus could come right now. He could come right now. He could come right now. It could be any moment. You never know. Do you know that's not what the Bible teaches? The Bible teaches that not only can we know when his coming is near, even at the very gates, but the Bible says that we must know when his coming is near because he draws a contrast and a comparison with believers who are anticipating, who are awake, who are sober, who are looking for and expecting the coming of the Lord that we will not get caught bunk and a prize. But the other group of people are people who are drunk and are asleep and are spiritually in a stupor and they're not paying attention to the things of this to the things of the Lord and they're not expecting the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ those are the ones who are going to get caught by surprise and the challenge that I have for you this morning is simply this wake up it is time for us to be awake and it's time for us to be prepared to meet Jesus face to face. And it is not just a suggestion, guys. We are commanded to be awake and to be alert and be ready and to be expecting the return. And the Bible is clear. Listen, we do not know the day or the what, but we might know the week, but we might know the month, 
We surely will know it within the year when his coming is what? It's near, even at the very gates, guys. That's what I'm trying to say to you this morning. And that's the way it was in the days of Noah before the flood. Now, I'm going to ask our praise team to come up this morning because we're going to go ahead and wrap this thing up. But here's my, here's my challenge and my encouragement. And as we put this word into practice and we look at all this fascinating nature around us, and I hope that I helped give you guys some answers and I hope I, I equipped you to be able to answer some people when they look at rocks and they look at fossils and you just challenge them on some of those things that I, that I shared with you this morning. Because, guys, we need to know how to defend the faith. We need to know how to give an answer to everyone who asks us for the reason of the hope that we have within us. We need to know how to give a defense for our faith. But here's the questions that I have for you this morning. Are you spiritually awake and prepared to meet Jesus face to face? And listen, here's the question I had to ask myself. If Jesus did come back today, what kind of a servant would he find you to be? Guys, if the what would he did come back in the very near future? What would he find you preoccupied with? What would he find his people in his church to be preoccupied with? Are we going to be preoccupied with the things of the world and the latest Netflix show and, and worried about money and, and entertainment and pleasure and all this kind of stuff that the world gets us wrapped up and gets us distracted? Are we going to be preoccupied with the Father's business and the Great Commission and being his witnesses and advancing the kingdom so that when he does find us on that day, he comes to us and he says, what? Well done my good and faithful servant. Guys, that's what I'm talking about. And so wherever you are today, whatever it is that you may be struggling with or wrestling with, we're about to sing a song, and it's very simple, but it's very true. And the song is this. All I need is you, Lord. All I need is you. And so as we sing, I just pray, you do business with God. You pray where you are. If you need help or counsel or prayer or whatever it may be, I'm going to be up here. Feel free to come and talk to me. But let's all spend the rest of this time worshiping the Lord together, declaring that all we need, all we need is Jesus. Let's all pray. Father, we just thank you so much for your goodness and mercy, your grace. We know that you are patient with us, Lord. But you're not slow in keeping your promises. We count time. Because, Lord, you are coming. And, Lord, you are coming to judge the living and the dead. And, Lord, only those who are secure and covered by the shed blood of Jesus, only those who have a relationship with you through your Son, only those of us, Lord, will be spared and saved. But, Lord, for the rest of the ungodly and those who have rejected your Son, Lord, you are coming in judgment with fire to pour out your wrath on the ungodly. I know that's not a popular, whoever we to preach on in today's world, but it's true. And so, Lord, I pray that whoever we are, wherever we are today, that every one of us here would search our hearts and say, Lord, what kind of a servant would you find me to be when you come? And Lord, help us to be about your business until the day that we go home to you or you come back to us. And I pray this now in Jesus' holy name. And all God's people said...